I want to start off this morning by telling you about August 24th, 1980. Uh, two young college students, John Wickham and Ezra Klein, uh, they completed a full month's work, about working about 12 hours a day for uh, 800 manpower hours together of delicate, precision work on constructing a quarter million domino rally. That's 250,000 dominoes that they stacked up. You can see the picture on the big screen uh, in this uh, Japanese hotel ballroom in order to break the Guinness Book of World Records. And so they were well prepared for it. They had this whole thing planned out because some of you who have been to Japan know that, the, that there are certain areas in Japan that are earthquake prone. And so uh, in order to, in fact, while they were building, they experienced three tremors while they were doing this whole domino construction project. And so the way they planned to, st- to, to deal with that is they would set up these heavy block stoppers throughout their domino track to prevent unplanned toppling over of dominoes. So they came well prepared. They knew what they were getting into. And they would only remove those heavy blockers uh, the night before. And so as the event arrived, 29, tip the first domino, goes racing through the entire uh, ballroom. 29 minutes, 13 seconds into the event. They thought they had planned for everything. And then one of the cameras, a relay camera cord, accidentally knocked over 6,000 dominoes, ending their record run. I want you to imagine being these two, 250,000 dominoes, 800 manpower hours that they invested into this. And I want you to think about, they're trying to break this world record. Imagine breathing in and starting, I can't imagine even starting to begin to think about the impossible task of starting over. And I want to propose to you that there are going to be moments in your life that are like that that like them, no matter how much you prepare and plan, that you cannot anticipate circumstances, camera relay cords that are beyond your control, that will knock down, knock over everything that you have built. It happens when we have moments where we lose our jobs or something happens and we lose our dignity or we lose our integrity. Some of you have already experienced things, a loss of health, a loss of home, a loss of a loved one. And despair tempts us to simply give in and give up. And so what we're looking at in the Word of God this morning is how you begin to start over after everything you've built has been knocked down. If you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Ruth chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are also some underneath every other chair as well as, uh, or you can just look on on the big screen. But we're in this new series called Redeemed in the book of Ruth, where we're discovering that God's providence works alongside our faithfulness to bring about his redemptive plan in the midst of life's pain. And that even though there is real suffering, sin, and its effects in our world, that providence means that God works out everything in the end for his redemptive good. And that it doesn't just happen for kings and nations and for history, but also in the everyday details of normal people, normal pain, lives like Ruth, Naomi, us. 
as we love and trust and follow God by faith. And so in the book of Ruth, you may remember we're in a time where God's people were indulging in themselves and in their sin apart from him, and they experienced suffering in the midst of a famine. And a man named Elimelech, he tragically made the practical but tragic decision to move his family to Moab, a land full of sexual immorality, idolatry, and hostility towards God's people. And he did so, why? To escape death and to save his family. And what happened when he got there? He died, and so did his two sons, leaving his wife Naomi with two childless Moabite daughter-in-laws and a heart full of bitterness. But then she hears rumors of a sovereign and good God who has shown up in Israel through the invisible hand of providence. That's what we've been talking about in Ruth in order to reverse the famine and the death that's happening there. And so she gets it in her heart and in her mind to go back to God, his people, his blessings. And he brings his, her daughters-in-law with her. But one of them turns back and turns away from God and this journey, back to the comfort of the familiar. And the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, chooses the courage of faith. And the question that we're looking at this morning as we read on in their, this historical account of their story is how do we, when we have to start over, how do we find favor, the favor of God, in the midst of our pain and our loss when we're starting over from scratch? Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her daughter, go, my daughter. So she set out, went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech, in case you forgot. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Let's stop right there for a moment. So in verse 1, we start off with kind of a side note. This is a, we're introduced to a new character who hasn't been part of the story in the first chapter, and it is a man who is related to Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, and his name is Boaz. And it says in that first verse, that Boaz was a worthy man. I want you to catch that. That means that he's worthy of respect. He's worthy of trust. He's worthy of imitation. Brothers, look at his character and his choices and imitate a man like him. That's what it means when it says that he was a worthy man. And in fact, as we will see throughout the rest of the book, that he's a man of wealth, of wisdom, a man who takes initiative, a godly man. And he's done very well in his life, and yet he's still single, kind of in a later stage of life. Now, I want you to contrast this worthy man with what it says about Ruth. In verse 2, we're immediately reminded that she is Ruth the Moabite. That's code for, compared to this worthy man, a Moabite is not considered worthy. That, that she's from a bad background. She's from the bad side of town, and that she's looked down on by the Israelites. But her and her mother-in-law, they're hungry and they're poor. And so she risks insult and abuse because she wants to take care of her elderly Jewish mother-in-law. So she respects, respectfully asks her, may I go to glean in other people's fields? Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to glean? 
It is the biblical equivalent of social services or like a food bank. You see, God commanded his people way back in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, that if you own a field or a vineyard, that you are not to go and harvest the entire field or vineyard. In fact, you need to leave margins that you don't take any of the food from. And if any grain or grapes fall to the ground, drop to the ground, that you are not to pick them up. That instead, to leave all that, the margins and the extra and anything that falls to the ground for orphans and widows and immigrants and the poor so that they can go through the fields and work for themselves and eat for themselves and their families. This is God's provision, his command to take care of those who have less. And Ruth fits the bill for all of those things. She's lost her husband. She's the widow. She's left her parents. She's an orphan. She's left her home. She's broke, but she's not bitter. You see, in this passage, she ventures out in faith, hoping that with some willing field owner that they'll let her glean, that she will find favor, it says in this passage. And I want you to catch that. That word is the key to this whole passage. It's a Hebrew word that means receiving something that is not owed to you, that is not earned, that is not deserved. So it's not like when we say, uh, I owe you a favor. Like, a, like if I do something nice for, for Andrew and he says to me, now I owe you a favor. It's not something you pay back. It's something that you don't deserve, that you don't earn. It's a gift. It is, it is grace. And so Ruth, though she is this unemployed, unwelcome, unworthy in the eyes of Jewish people, Moabite woman, she's hoping and praying that she'll receive grace instead of rejection. In verses 3 and 4, her mother-in-law agrees, and so Ruth goes. And the Bible says, and I want you to hear this, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to, to Boaz, who happened to be visiting one of his many uh, businesses that day, who happens to be a godly man of faith who is kind, and you see that he blesses his employees. And I want you to understand that this is kind of the biblical author's fun way of saying, it's not, it didn't just happen. That's not, that's not what it's saying. This is his fun way of saying that it's not happenstance, it's not coincidence, it's not luck or chance. This is the providence of God. That Ruth, and I want you to see how this inter works. We're not robots that God sovereignly controls. Ruth made a free will choice to pick that particular field. No angel spoke to her. There was no burning bush. But what looks to our human eyes like it just happened by random chance, we see is going to be the gracious provision of the providential hand of God. That from our loom's eye view, if you were weaving something like in a loom, from our loom's eye view, all we see are these messy threads, these loose threads of each person's different choices. But from God's perspective, he's weaving together all these threads to uh, form a beautiful tapestry. None of it is an accident. None of it is out of his control. And so as Ruth is starting her life over from the very bottom, instead of simply rolling over, she's declaring, my life is, I'm honest with myself, my life is bad, but God is good. He will not forsake me. He will favor me. And so I need to go out and find that. That's faith. And so the big idea of this text this morning is that like her, even when we can't yet see God's favor, that we trust we'll experience God's providential favor by being proactively faithful. 
That on the one hand, we trust that God is sovereign and good, but that doesn't mean that we are simply passive and sit back and do nothing, waiting for God's sovereignty to make things happen in our lives. Faithfulness is, that, is trusting that God is at work behind the scenes and that we trust that by seeking his will and then acting upon it when we hear from him. So many of you have heard <coughs> the story many, many times about how God gave our church, uh, our, our, our uh, board of elders and deacons, a vision back in 2011 for changing us from just focusing on being an ethnic church to one that crosses generations and cultures uh, together in Christ, and particularly focused on our local community. You've heard this story many times in 2011. What you haven't heard is that after months of prayer and planning and excitement, there were also months of deafening silence where we started to wonder, were we mistaken or has God forgotten? Is God providential? That same year, though, after months of silence in August of 2011, I had the privilege of attending the Global Leadership Summit, a Christian conference uh, to equip leaders. And it, and it, to use the, borrow the language of the Bible, it just so happened that I met a woman named Derry. She noticed my name badge and, my church, and that our church is on it. It said CFC Church of Hayward. And she came up to me and said, excuse me, I see that your church is in Hayward. I'm part of a ministry called Hidden Treasures where we serve kids from Hayward, but we're having trouble. It's taking us too much time and resources. We only have four people on our ministry team to bus all these kids from Hayward uh, to their church in Livermore. And so we're looking for a church in Hayward with facilities and volunteers. And so I said to her, it just so happens that we have both. And so to kind of test the waters, they invited us to a barbecue and swim party at Don Castro in Hayward uh, that was organized by them to bless the kids and families in their ministry. It just so happens that it dovetailed with uh, Dustin, Valine, Melissa, and I were had invited 10 people to come into our home to train them, uh, live with us for a week, and to be trained in living out the gospel together, and that we were just so happened to looking for a way to engage people in our community. And after that, because the kids uh, got to know just a handful of people from our church, it just so happens that we started telling them about uh, our children's program, and that opened the door for eight kids to come on a Friday night to our children's ministry. And they had such a good time that they invited their friends, so 16 came the next week. And then with it, by the end of the month, 50 children from our neighborhood were coming to our kids' program. It just so happens. What do we call that? Providence, God's providence. And I think about how close we came to not having that not happen if we had not come up, not listened to God about his vision for this church, if we had gotten fed up, if we had given up in the waiting. But instead, people in this church, you kept actively seeking God's will, praying and listening and obeying, and so that when the opportunity came, you acted on it in faith. And so what do we call that? Faithfulness. God's providence works with people's faithfulness. And so when your life comes crashing down and you need to start over and you feel like, I don't want to do that. I don't have anything left in me. You need to remember that your story is not yet finished. That God's invisible hand of providence is at work weaving together all these threads, the good ones and the bad ones. He can weave them together to form a beautiful tapestry. The question is, will I be faithful? 
Now, being faithful doesn't mean like I just put on a happy face and say like, okay, my life is terrible, but I'm a happy Christian and that's fine. It doesn't mean that we ignore problems or pain, but what it does mean is that we acknowledge my suffering is great, but my Savior is greater, and I trust that. So I want to ask you this morning, how is Jesus calling you personally to be faithful in this season? Even when, just like Ruth, you cannot yet see his favor. Perhaps in your work or in your worship. Your relationship with God has been sitting off to the side for some time. Perhaps in your family, in your ministry, or with your money. Are you trusting him by pursuing him so that you can obey him and move with him when his favor starts to come? And I want to encourage you, when we're battered and bruised on the road of life, many people turn back from God too soon when his favor is just around the corner of his providence. Now, we talk about being faithful to God, wanting his favor. Well, that just sounds like the Bible saying you should work to earn God's favor. Isn't that just like every other religion in the world that says that if you follow rules A, B, C, and you follow, do all the right things, then you can uh, earn the favor of the Lord? I want to tell you that that's actually the opposite of what the Bible is saying this morning. That faithfulness is not something we do to earn blessing, but it's something we do because we trust the blesser and we honor him. And I want you to see why, picking up in verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who also came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? First recorded protection against sexual abuse in, in, in the Bible, I think. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So I want you to see what's happening here. Normally, an owner like Boaz would just come to his field, just check in, make sure that things are going well in his field, uh, encourage the workers, and then be on his way. But in verse 5, he happens to notice this young woman, Ruth, and he takes his young foreman aside, his college intern, and says, I don't recognize that, that girl. Who does she work for? And in verses 6 and 7, the field intern says, she is a young Moabite woman, code for not our people. But she's been taking care of her Jewish uh, mother-in-law, who's a widow, Naomi. That's code for that they're poor people. But when she's come, she's been very respectful. She asked permission to glean your field. She's not looking for a handout or a cop-out. She's been working almost nonstop from morning until now. And so in verse 8, impressed, Boaz actually goes and approaches Ruth and has a few words for her, young lady. I've heard how humble and hardworking you are. 
And so instead of settling for the slim pickings over there in Victor's field or in Kevin's field, why don't you stay in mine and stick with the girls who work for me? In other words, I'm treating you, Ruth, an outsider, an unwelcome, unworthy person in in Jewish eyes. I'm treating you as if you were someone in my own household so that you can gather the first fruits in the front of the line with with the women who work for me instead of gleaning the leftovers in the back. And in verse 9, as if that wasn't enough, he also commands uh, the men who work for him, not just the ladies, but the, the men who reap, not to refuse her, not to abuse her. Because they, a lot of people might have felt like they could take advantage of her because she's not one of us. She's not the right kind of girl. And even, in fact, commands those same men to be the ones to share their water with, with this woman who's not from her, their household. Now, I want you to understand how much this would offend uh, people's ears back in that time, in the biblical times. Because here's this Moabite who's considered unclean, unworthy. And usually, a, a foreigner would have to be the one who draws water for Jewish people when they come to their country. It would have to be women, traditionally, in Jewish culture, who draw water for the men. But Boaz turns things upside down and around and and says that the water that the men have drawn, they have to give to her. It's an incredible blessing. And so some of us, we read the story and we're like, aw, it's love at first sight. And some of us are like, ew, this is more like lust at first sight because some of you don't believe in love at first sight, which is, but, and I would argue that it is neither of those things in this passage. It's not love or lust. And the reason why is, you know what? Ruth didn't spend hours primping and preening uh, to entice and seduce a wealthy man, a wealthy single man. She's been spending all day laboring under this hot Palestinian sun, covered in dust and dirt and sweat because she's poor and hungry, but because she loves her mother-in-law and trusts that God is a provider even for an outsider. So she didn't come. (laughs) I want you to imagine a homeless woman drenched in sweat and dirt hair up in a ponytail, no makeup. Like, I don't think that that's the woman who is winning Boaz's heart. He's wealthy, a man of means. And so she's blessed, not for the allure of her beauty, not because she's earned a paycheck as an employee, but because God's providence is experienced in extravagant favor to people. That the favor of God means that it's not something that we were entitled to or earned. It's a gift It's given by grace. And I want you to catch this, right? The law requires that Boaz allow a poor person like Ruth to glean the leftovers of his field. But grace goes beyond the law to pour out an extravagant blessing that is not earned to this homeless Moabite woman by treating her like she is a member of his household, that she's given the privilege to pick from the best of the grain, that she's protected from mistreatment and abuse, that she's provided for with life-giving water that belongs to her family and her people. His people, excuse me. So this picture here of Boaz is pointing us to what God's favor is like. That God also goes beyond the law to grace to give us what we need instead of what we deserve through Jesus. That Jesus comes and he heals our hurts. He fixes our fears. He defeats our doubts. He forgives our sins. He lifts our burdens. He gives us life. He rose from the dead. He is coming again, and we can be with him forever. 
and that those are not things we earn because we were good enough, but because Jesus is. That is favor. That's grace. And so when you are knocked down and having to start over in life because of a failure or your future gets knocked down or losses or you're starting over your life and you feel that you cannot go on, then God invites you to simply come before his throne of grace to receive his unearned favor. And then you will experience for yourself how he is at work unseen, providentially and powerfully to pour extravagant, unearned favor into the pain that's here as well as the joys to come. So we meet a woman who is faithfully responding to God, faithfully trusting in his providence, and a God who is extravagant in his favor. Let's look at how the story ends, starting verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward by, be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. We're going to stop right there for today. So in verse 10, the way Ruth responds is she prostrates herself. She falls on her knees with her forehead touching the ground. If it were in any other context, it would be considered an act of worship. But in ancient Near East culture, it is a sign of incredible social distance between this man and her. That I am poor, homeless, dirty, an ex-demon worshiping Moabite outsider. And you are a wealthy, well-respected, godly business leader. How in the world have I found any favor in your eyes? Undeserved grace. Verse 11, Boaz says, I've heard how you lost your husband, how you left behind your family and your country and your amazing faithfulness and sacrifice for your mother-in-law. But that's not the reason why you found favor. Verse 12, you're favored because you're like this little bird without a nest who sought refuge under the mighty wings of a god who is powerful, who protects, who provides. You have received favor because you sought refuge in God. Now pay attention. This is really the key that we're, where we want to land this morning. Pay attention. He prays. Did you guys catch that? He gives a short prayer of blessing. Because of your faith, Ruth, because of your faithfulness, may the Lord repay what? Repay what? All the things that I just mentioned, all the things that you lost, your husband, your home, your food, your family, all those things, may God repay those things. May he bring new things in for that. Now, here's my question for you. And for those of you, spoiler alert, I'm going to jump ahead. Some of you already know the, the rest of Ruth's story. Did God answer that prayer, Boaz's prayer? Yes. 
Who did God providentially send to answer the prayers of Boaz? Boaz. That Boaz will come, and he's praying for God to restore all that she's lost, including food for her and her mother-in-law. Who provides the food? Boaz. He prays, and later he will be the one who becomes her husband. Spoiler alert. And he prays and for, for her to restore her family, and he will be the one to start a family with her together and give her a baby. So I'm going to argue that from this text that is teaching us that there are times that our faithfulness is God's providential answer to prayers for his favor towards other people. That sometimes we are God's answers to our own prayer for others. You see, the way it works is there are times that we pray and God changes the circumstances and moves the hand of God. And then there's times that we pray and it changes our hearts and it moves the hands of the one who is praying that God convicts us, that's why you're here. And so we don't just pray that God would do something. We acknowledge that God often moves through the hand of his providence and his people. And that if I'm his people and I'm here, maybe I'm the one he's sending to be his answer to that prayer. And we see that, that that's true oftentimes, not just with people throughout the Bible and in our own lives. We see that with Jesus when he's on a cross, when he prays, Father, forgive them. And then what does Jesus do? He answers that prayer by being on that cross and dying for our sins, for the forgiveness of all men and women who come to him by faith. So often, Christians pray, offer their thoughts and prayers, rightly so, and yet fail to act in answer to those prayers. So we don't just pray, God, would you lead my friend to salvation? In addition to that, I also go and tell my friend about Jesus. I don't just pray, God, comfort my hurting friend. And yet, instead, I need to sit down with them, put my arm around them, pray with them, and comfort that friend. And I don't just pray that God would provide a home and food for people in a season of upheaval. I answer that prayer by signing up for someone's meal train, or I get involved in bridging grace to give and deliver groceries to needing families in our community. And so I want to ask you, what are you praying for someone where you might be God's answer? And this passage closes in verse 13 with Ruth saying, I have found favor in your eyes, that you comforted me. You spoke kindly to me. The word there that is a, one of the themes throughout the book of Ruth is hesed. It means loving kindness was spoken to her. As if I was one of your household, even though I'm not. And why does Boaz do all this? I would argue because he understands the gospel. No, no, the gospel's in the New Testament. Jesus hasn't come yet. He understands the grace of God. Unearned favor that comes from the Lord. Because this is the gospel. You and I are Ruth. We were pagans, we were rebels, we come empty-handed and needy. And Jesus is our great Boaz. That just as Boaz came to survey his field, Jesus came to earth to survey his. As Boaz looks out and sees Ruth, Jesus has seen us. 
That as Boaz pursues Ruth and speaks kindly to her, Jesus comes before us not coercively, but gently, humble in heart, finding us, loving us, speaking kindness, loving kindness to us. And just as Boaz went beyond the law all the way to grace, so does Jesus come to us to give us not what we deserve for our sins in punishment, but to give us what we need, acceptance, forgiveness, love, and compassion, and welcome into his family. He goes well beyond the law all the way to grace, and now you and I, we have found favor, unearned favor in the eyes of Jesus. So we trust God and his providential favor by being proactively faithful, that these two things are not mutually exclusive categories, that as we trust God's providence, that he is sovereign and good, that we are faithfully responding to that and trusting in that. And that's why we, we do things not to earn God's favor, but we trust that he is already at work and in response to it. And so I want to ask you, there are times that perhaps you're in pain or in need, like Ruth. Are you being faithful by continuing to seek out God, his will, his ways in your life, even when you cannot yet see the favor of God in your life? Because remember, our acts of faithfulness, they're not something we do to earn a blessing. It's something we do because we trust in the blesser. And then there's times that you might be Boaz. And being faithful to God's providence means that you recognize that the grace of God has been poured into us, into our lives. And so we generously pour that back, his favor, onto other people as his answer to prayers. Do you need to be faithful like Ruth this morning? or faithful like Boaz. And as we look at this passage, Pastor John Piper, he describes the book of Ruth like, kind of like this, that life is not a straight line that's leading from one blessing to the next and then eventually, finally, you get to go to heaven. That's not how life works. That life is a winding and troubled road with switchback after switchback, and that the point of the book of Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just in our heads, that God is for us, that he gives us favor in all of these strange turns, that God doesn't just show up after the troubles come and then cleans up the mess, that he's plotting the course, he's managing the troubles with his far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus. And so may we trust in God's providence. May we respond with our faithfulness and may we rejoice in finding his favor, his unearned grace that's both here in our pains and there in the life to come. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning deeply thankful for this historical account of real everyday people. They weren't spiritual heroes of the nation. They didn't fight wars and and received the promised land. They didn't do miraculous things and witness those things. Naomi and Ruth are just normal people like us, people who suffered, people who have lost, people who were at the bottom for a while in their lives. And as they need to start over again, how incredibly daunting. And yet, if you are who you say you are, If you can do what you say you can do, would you give us courage to trust you like that? To step out in faith, act in faithfulness, 
not to earn or work for some favor from you, but because we trust your favor. We trust your grace. We trust that you are God who is extravagant in your blessing and kindness. And that because you are moving your invisible hand of providence, that you weave together the good, the bad, the painful, and the beautiful, that you weave all these things together and you'll produce something redemptive, something good, something holy, something that blesses us, that strengthens us, that helps us to see you and experience more of your joy, your closeness. So God, give us courage to be faithful, that knowing that you are sovereign and providential doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing. May we be like Ruth, trusting you when we cannot see you yet. And may we be like Boaz, recognizing that it's all from you and to be used by you, and that we get to be the beneficiaries of experiencing your favor and the beneficiaries of passing on your favor. So whatever surgery you need to do in our hearts this morning, we bow before you. We ask that you would come and do your work. In Jesus' name.